At this time, Hosanna indeed, Hosanna in the highest to the King of Kings. What a special time to be in church. Today is a very special day, the beginning of Holy Week, the most sacred season for the people of God. And I am so excited. It seems like the older I get, the more I appreciate the rituals, the traditions, the songs, the sights of the palms, the, the purple cloth, the white cloth, the lilies on Easter, all of those things have become richer and richer to me as I grow older. Thank you so much to our children for leading us in worship today and to their helpers. Thank you for reminding us about this king who entered into the city humbly and on a donkey. So traditionally, this is uh, the week that leads up to Easter Sunday, the holiest day of all on the church calendar. And based on what we read in Scripture, the Holy Week begins on Sunday when Jesus entered into the city. We call it Palm Sunday because the people laid palm branches before him as he came in. Then the next day, on Monday, Jesus was walking into the city with his disciples and he cursed the fig tree outside of the city in a teaching moment as he always was doing. And, and then he entered the temple and drove out all the extortionists and the, the money changers who were cheating. And then on Tuesday, Jesus delivered the sermon uh, that we now know as the Olivet Discourse as he sat on the Mount of Olives overlooking the city of Jerusalem prophesying what was to come in the future. Then on Wednesday, he continued to teach in the temple. And then on Thursday, he celebrated the Passover meal, which we are going to celebrate together on Thursday, on Maundy Thursday, right here in this sacred space. It was the Last Supper before his crucifixion. And then on Friday, he was nailed to a cross for our sins. I love the way Andrew Peterson tells it in his song, Lord, Remember Me. He says, on Sunday you came as a king, on Monday washed the temple clean, on Tuesday you told of what will be, on Wednesday you waited patiently, on Thursday you said it is time, I drink this cup because it is mine, on Friday, Lord, you poured the wine. I'm in a group of preachers that gets together about once a month and we talk about what we're preaching and kind of give each other ideas and I confessed to them about a month ago that I wasn't really planning well when I decided that I'd preach through John in 2019, and one of them cut me off and says, and now you're in John 6, right, on Easter? And I was like, no, we're actually still in John 5, but yes, that's the, that's the problem. We're not traditionally following these texts. When I sent my sermon outline to Mark about two months ago, he said, wait, 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 these are not Easter texts. These are not Palm Sunday texts. What are you doing? I said, I think it's going to work. <laughs> don't, don't panic. <laughs> And once again, I really do think it's worked out beautifully. Two years ago when I decided to preach through the Bible, you weren't here for this, I, I thought it would be a good idea to start in Genesis in January, and I didn't realize we'd be in Revelation right in the middle of Advent season. But it worked out great, I thought. We did a Follow the Lamb series. I thought it was really fun and meaningful. And The Lord says that all Scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness, all scripture. So let's stand this morning in honor of God's word, if you're able to, as I read our primary text for today from the Gospel of John, chapter five, verses 31 through 47. Hear now the word of the Lord. If I alone bear witness, Jesus says, about myself, my testimony is not deemed true. There is another who bears witness about me, and I know that the testimony he bears about me is true. You sent to John, and he has borne witness to the truth. 
Not that the testimony that I receive is from man, but I say these things so that you may be saved. He, John, was a burning and shining lamp, and you were willing to rejoice for a while in his light. But the testimony that I have is greater than that of John. For the works that the Father has given me to accomplish, the very works that I am doing, bear witness about me that the Father has sent me. And the Father who sent me has himself borne witness about me. His voice you've never heard, his form you've never seen, and you do not have his word abiding in you, for you do not believe the one whom he has sent. You search the scriptures because you think that in them you have eternal life, and it is they that bear witness about me. Yet you refuse to come to me that you may have life I do not receive glory from people, but I know that you do not have the love of God within you. I have come in my Father's name, yet you do not receive me. If another comes in his own name, you'll receive him. How can you believe when you receive glory from another and do not seek the glory that comes from the only God? Do not think that I will accuse you to the Father. There is one who accuses you, Moses on whom you have set your hope. If you believed Moses, you would believe me, for he wrote of me. But if you do not believe his writings, how will you believe my words? This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. You may have a seat. You know, I've been blessed to have the opportunity to do some of what Rob was talking about. Thank you, Rob. It's amazing work. I'm, I'm going to try to go in June on the June trip. I'm not very handy, but I uh, can do what I'm told. So it'll be a lot of fun uh, to see what God's doing there with my own eyes. But I've had the chance to travel and do some mission work uh, around the world. I've gotten to go to Australia four times. I've gotten to go to Spain seven times. I've been to Guatemala the last two years with Woodmont. It's been uh, amazing to see what the Lord's doing around the world. I'm so excited that our youth are getting the chance to go to Puerto Rico uh, this summer and see what the Lord's up to down there as they also recover from Hurricane Maria. But when I went to Australia the, the second time, I went by myself. And the, the pastor there really mentored me and took me under his wing and nurtured me. And he, he told me, Nathan, you, you really need to be careful not to be the stereotypical American. And I was like, what does that mean? We're the, we're the best, man. What's wrong with Americans? He said, well, sometimes they can have a reputation in, in Sydney, at least, for being a little abrasive, a little aggressive, maybe a little loud. And I said, what? Loud? Who? Me? No. And he told me a story about a Texan lady who came on a mission trip through a joint project with the Baptist Convention of New South Wales. And this lady was boisterous and a little aggressive maybe and uh, she said let's all go to dinner and so she took the pastor and his family out to a nice restaurant she said I'm buying I'm buying you get something nice get whatever you want because I'm 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 buying she was a wealthy uh, lady from from Dallas and when the meal ended the pastor said well thank you very much and she said no problem and she pulled out her purse and she pulled out three crisp $100 bills with Benjamin Franklin's face on them, and the server just kind of looked at her and said, uh, ma'am, we, we don't take American money. And she said, why not? It's the best money in the world. Why wouldn't you take American money? <laughs> and he said, ma'am, this is, this is Australia. <laughs> we, we, we have our own currency here that we use. You're, you're going to have to use a 
a credit card or, or something. And she was so offended by that, which of course all the Australians who were with her were so offended that she would insist on using American money. You know, I've tried to help students and others on these kinds of trips to uh, appropriate cultural differences when we're in a different country. We have to show some deference, some eagerness to learn about their culture and to appreciate it, the parts of it that are good. It's, it's not appropriate to act as if we're in America when we are not in reality in America. When Jesus came to earth, he was not entering into some foreign, hostile territory. Yes, he came from heaven, but he was not unfamiliar with earth. No, all of creation was spoken into existence through the divine word of God. But we see over and over again in the Gospel of John that people did not recognize who Jesus was. They did not recognize him for who he is. They did not recognize his authority over his creation. In the prologue, in John 1, verse 10 tells us, he was in the world, and the world was made through him, yet the world did not know him. He came to his own, and his own people did not receive him. The world was made through him. You see, Jesus' money is good everywhere. It's all his territory anyway. What he offers is valid and true and acceptable all over the universe because it's all through him that it was made. He has the authority, the validity, the legitimacy to do the things that he does, including heal a lame man on the Sabbath day and command him to get up and take up his mat and walk. So he's still in Jerusalem in this text in chapter 5, and he's still defending himself against the accusations of the Jewish authorities there in the temple area who are so threatened by him that they decide that he must be killed. These are the leaders of God's people, and they don't have a clue. They're actually leading God's people astray. They've become comfortable in their power and in, in insisting on these continued empty rituals of sacrifice that don't have the power to cleanse sin. And they are leading the sheep of the Lord away from where he would have them to go. So Jesus confronts them. He confronts them with the evidence before them. There's this amazing kind of courtroom drama. I love courtroom dramas, you know, to, to watch movies or plays a, about a courtroom drama. And all throughout the Gospel of John, there's kind of a courtroom dynamic going on. It's as if these court officials want to put Jesus on trial and question him. And we know later that's exactly what happens. But Jesus is saying, no, 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 no. That's not the reality. I am not the one on trial here. You guys are on the hot seat. And I'm the judge, the bailiff, and the lead attorney all rolled into one. We'll see how you are found at the conclusion of the trial. So as one does in a trial, Jesus, as the lead attorney, produces witnesses. That's what this text is about. Look at verse 31. If I alone bear witness about myself, my testimony is not true. 
We know from the Old Testament law that one person's testimony was not accepted as valid until there were multiple witnesses. So Jesus says, fine, you want multiple witnesses? Let me call a few. Who does he call? First, he says in verse 32, he's got the greatest witness there could possibly be. He's not talking about John the Baptist here. It may seem like that. But he's actually referring to God the Father. There's another who bears witness about me. It's not just me. It's God the Father. And I know that what he says about me is true. And then the next verse, he does talk about John, so they may be thinking he's talking about John. Verse 33, you sent to John. Remember when John's out there baptizing and the Jewish authorities send people to investigate what's going on out there in the wilderness? And he has borne witness to the truth. He pointed to Jesus and said, Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Verse 34, not that the testimony that I receive is from man. He doesn't need approval from humans, but I say these things so that you may be saved. Jesus came to seek and save the lost. That theme is throughout. He's not trying to condemn anyone. He's trying to save them, to rescue them. Verse 35, John was a burning and shining lamp, and you were willing to rejoice for a while in his light, but the testimony that I have from God the Father is greater than that of John. He's referring to this higher witness. Look at verse 37. He spells it out. The Father who, you, who, who sent me has himself borne witness about me. His voice you've never heard. His form you've never seen. And you don't have his word abiding in you, for you do not believe the one whom he has sent. We know that the word of God is the logos, the eternal pre-existent God, the Son, who was sent to earth to rescue us, and they do not have that word in them. Man, this trial is not going well for these guys. It's kind of a, a, a downer text for Palm Sunday, but Jesus tells them, look guys, John was incredible. He was this, this burning lamp. He, he was a great prophet, but I am the light itself. What John was shining was actually me. And you guys went out to him, and, and several of you guys got baptized, and we're all excited about what God was doing. But when you first heard what John was saying, that you had to surrender yourself and die to yourself and be raised into a whole new kind of life, you weren't so excited about it. You guys called him possessed and had him thrown in prison and beheaded. As great as John was, Jesus says, I have testimony from God the Father who's working through me right now doing these incredible things on your behalf. You know, I understand, he says, that you've never heard God's voice. Okay, I get it. You guys have never seen God with your own eyeballs, but now you have. He's standing right in front of you. His word become flesh has come to earth, and you guys don't even see it. And it gets worse. These guys were experts in the law. They had studied God's word, his commandments, the Torah, for the majority of their entire lives. They knew the law backwards and forward. They had poured over the Hebrew scriptures, what we call the, the Old Testament, and they were still missing the whole central point of those texts. Look at verse 39. You search the scriptures because you think that in them you have eternal life. 
It is they that bear witness about me. Yet you refuse to come to me that you may have life. He's trying to give us life. I love the way uh, Andreas Kostenberger, he's a professor at Southeastern Seminary, he, he says in his commentary, in their concern for obedience to the law, they miss the coming of the lawgiver. In their concern for upholding the requirements for a religious life, they miss the one who is life itself. In their concern for the study of the scriptures, they missed the coming of the one of whom the scriptures spoke. You see, the, the law of Moses could never save sinners. It could only expose them. The law was given only to show us how far short we fall of God's holy standard and that we need a savior. We can't do it on our own, that we need rescue that we cannot provide. This section started in chapter 5 with Jesus defending himself in verse 19 against the accusation that he'd broken the law of Moses by healing a man on the Sabbath day, that that was work and that that broke the rules. And now he, he says, no, 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 guys, Moses is not accusing me, he's accusing you. Look at verse 45. Don't think that I will accuse you to the Father. There is one who accuses you, Moses, on whom you have set your hope. For if you really believed Moses, you would believe me, for he wrote of me. But if you do not believe his writings, how will you believe my words? Way back on the plains of Moab in Deuteronomy chapter 18 when two million Israelites were overlooking the Jordan about to finally enter the promised land after 40 years of whining and wandering, Moses hears a word from the Lord, Deuteronomy 18, 18. And God says, I will raise up for them a prophet like you from among their brothers. And I will put my words, the logos, in his mouth. And he shall speak to them all that I command him. Moses was prophesying about the Messiah, the anointed one who would come to free God's people from sin and sorrow forever, and they missed him. If the Jewish leaders really believed Moses, meaning if they really understood their brokenness and their inability to perfectly fulfill the requirements of the law, if they really were longing for divine forgiveness, for divine intervention, and for eternal, abundant life, they would now be falling on their faces before their Lord and Master. Let's not miss the glory of the Savior when we look to the Bible. I've heard it said that evangelical churches worship the Holy Trinity of God the Father, the Son, and the Holy Bible. We need to be careful that we invite the Spirit of God here, God the Spirit, and we don't neglect the Holy Spirit, and that we don't elevate the Scriptures over God. You know, Kent Hughes is one of my favorite authors. He, he was a pastor in Chicago for a long time, and he says, looking to the Bible and not seeing Jesus is like going up in the, the Willis Tower, uh, now formerly known as the Sears Tower, right? I think it's the second tallest building still in America next to the Freedom Tower in New York. But going up there to the observation deck, how many of you have been to the top of the Sears Tower? Lots of you. Wow. 
And, and you see this amazing view. I've been to the top of the Hancock building. We didn't go up to the Sears Tower, but the, the vista is incredible. Chicago, this beautiful city with a river running through it, and Lake Michigan, which spreads to the horizon. It's like the ocean, it looks like. And, you know, the sun's going down. And imagine being up there and just seeing this incredible view. And some little guy pulls on your sleeve, and he's like, check out this window. Isn't it amazing? And you say, what? He says, look at, look at how the glass is set into the steel here and little bolts holding it in. That's, that's amazing. Gary, you may appreciate that. You architects would, yeah, y'all would love those windows. You're missing the point, though. What if he was like, look, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to take some samples of this window with my pocket knife, and I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to analyze the chemical compounds in it, and I'll, I'll send you the results. If you, give me your email address so I can contact you and let you know what, what this window's made of. Unless you design buildings for a living, I think you're missing the point, even if you do. When we look to the Bible, we see the beautiful realities of Jesus Christ. I love the children's version of the Bible, the Jesus Storybook Bible by Sally Lloyd-Jones. I've referenced it a lot. But the subtitle says, every story whispers his name. Every page of the Old Testament, every page of the New Testament. We have to read the Bible Christologically, meaning we read it through the lens of Jesus Christ. We see Christ everywhere in Scripture. These Jewish leaders got stuck on the window, and they missed the vista beyond it. They missed the one whom the window was meant to display. Okay, so how is this a Palm Sunday passage? Well, when Jesus entered Jerusalem the third time towards the end of his ministry, he was received as a king, as we have said and as we heard read earlier. I happened to be in Madrid on a mission trip. We were touring the city, and we were right outside the royal palace when the president of Mexico came for a state visit, and there was a huge motorcade and motorcycles everywhere and all this pomp and circumstance, and we were uh, ushered outside the bordered area, and it was a really cool thing to see a head of state arriving at the, the capital of Spain. We were in Guatemala last year when our vice president, Mike Pence, showed up for a visit, and there were protesters everywhere and helicopters going everywhere. and it was, it was a crazy scene. It would seem that Jesus arrived in Jerusalem kind of like that this time. Let's look at the Gospel of Matthew as we read our Palm Sunday text. Matthew 21, verse 1. When Jesus and his disciples drew near to Jerusalem and came to Bethphage, to the Mount of Olives, then Jesus sent two disciples, saying to them, Go into the village in front of you. And immediately you'll find a donkey tied and a colt with her. Untie them and bring them to me. If anyone says anything to you, you shall say, the Lord needs them. And he will send them at once. This took place to fulfill what was spoken by the prophet, saying, this is Zechariah, say to the daughter of Zion, behold, your king is coming to you, humble, not on a war horse, not with a huge sword by his side, but mounted on a donkey, on a colt, the foal, not even a big donkey, but like a baby donkey, beast of burden. The disciples went and did as Jesus had directed them. They brought the donkey and the colt and put, them, put on them their cloaks, and he sat on them. And most of the crowd sp spread their cloaks on the road, and others cut branches from the trees and spread them on the road. And the crowds that went before him and that followed him were shouting, Hosanna to the son of David. Hosanna means God save us. It's a 
cry of praise and of desperation at the same time. <laughs> Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Hosanna in the highest. And when he entered Jerusalem, the whole city was stirred up saying, who is this? And the crowd said, this is the prophet Jesus from Nazareth of Galilee. It's one of the most vivid accounts in, in all four Gospels, this story is told of the Savior coming to his people as a triumphant king. And Jesus arrives as the ultimate head of state, the king who was coming to free his people once and for all and to rule over them for eternity. But again, not a king like we expected, a king that subverted the ways of this world by coming humble and seated on the foal of a donkey. And Moses prophesied that the Messiah was coming not only as a king, but as a prophet, as the ultimate prophet. He was coming to reveal all the truth about God and his kingdom for everyone to see. And not only was this Messiah the ultimate king and the ultimate prophet, but he came as the ultimate high priest, the ultimate priest. His arrival into the city was indeed amazing, but it was the exit that mattered most. When he left the city, he was not received as a king, but he was beaten, bloodied, and bruised as he carried his cross out to Golgotha. And as Logan mentioned in his prayer, the same people who shouted Hosanna on Sunday were shouting, crucify, crucify. Jesus was the perfect king, the perfect prophet, and the perfect priest. His arrival into the city was indeed a, a, a true revelation of who he was, that he was the one who could save us. We cry Hosanna today, knowing that nothing less than total submission to him is required in order to obtain the kind of eternal, abundant life that he came to give us as the perfect prophet, priest, and king. You may say, okay, so what does that have to do with me today? Well, how do you handle situations that are out of your control? How do you handle things that are, are not good when you go through trials in your life? Do you look to the author and perfecter of your faith, the one through whom this entire cosmos was spoken? Or do you scramble to try to handle it yourself, relying on your own human resources? The Gospel of John cl clearly shows us it's not Jesus who's on trial. He is, has been found true and right and acceptable and good all the time. It is us who are on trial. How do we receive him today? Are we enjoying him like the Jews enjoyed John for a little bit, but then when we get serious about what Jesus calls us to, we say, nah, I'm not going to do that. I'm going to back away from that. Or are we leaning in to full submission into what Jesus calls us to do? to die to ourselves and take up our cross and follow him. Let's pray. Lord God, we thank you that you came to save us. We thank you that you came to show us that you are the perfect king, ruling in authority and majesty and glory and dominion over this entire world. That you left your heavenly throne in order to set up a throne here that will never pass away. The scepter will not depart from your hand. But God, I also thank you that you came as the perfect prophet, that you've shown us in your own enfleshment, in, in, in that you came uh, to show us what 
God the Father looks like by putting on flesh and walking among us and living a perfect, sinless life here on earth. And God, I thank you that you are the perfect priest, that you've made intercession between us and God, bridging the gap that our sin created, the chasm that separated us once from the holy God, that now we can climb into your arms and be called your child. God, we thank you for the amazing love that you showed us on the cross. We pray that this week that we would dwell intently on what the cross means, that you would love us so much that you sent your only son, that whosoever believes in you will not perish but have eternal life. God, I pray that as we enter into Holy Week, we would receive you as king, as prophet, and priest. We love you. We pray these things in the perfect holy word of Jesus Christ. Amen. If you're here today and you need to make a decision or if you need prayer for something, we're going to have a time of invitation now. We're going to sing, take my life and let it be consecrated, Lord, to thee. Take it, Lord. Use it for all that you are and for all that you want to do with me. The Lord wants to use every one of you. I don't know what your gifts and abilities are, what your station is like in life. You may say, I'm not in a place right now where I can give, where I can pour out myself. Here's the thing, in pouring out, you find you gain. If you want to really live in the abundant life, you die to yourself and find out how in emptying yourself, the Lord fills you more than you possibly could have asked or imagined. So I invite you to die to yourself today, to come forward and pray with somebody. Trey, uh, Brad, if you'll come. Jane, if you'll come, if you want to pray with somebody. They're here to pray with you or if you just want to come to the altar and pray. If you realize it's time to join Woodmont Baptist Church and you've kind of been doing life on your own, but you're ready to get plugged into a small group, you're ready to, to make relationships. Christianity is a team sport, guys. You can't do it alone. It's meant to be done in community and in relation. And if you want to be a part of this family of faith, we're not perfect, but we'd love to receive you as one more imperfect person who God can make perfect uh, through his Holy Spirit living inside of you. And if you want to join Woodmont, come talk to me about that right now. I'd love to talk to you about what that looks like. Maybe you want to be baptized. We're going to celebrate baptism next week on Easter Sunday as a symbol of death and resurrection. And then we're going to celebrate it again the next week on April 28th as Caroline Rogers comes for baptism as well. So... God's doing some great things in the life of this church. There's no greater thing than uh, new life that comes through dying to yourself and being raised to new life in Christ. So I invite you to come forward now. Let's stand and sing hymn 490, Take My Life and Let It Be.